Hi, and welcome to Bread. We're a newish, open-minded, spirit-filled, non-denominational church who now meet each week in Hollywood Adventist on the corner of Hollywood Boulevard and Van Ness in Los Angeles. In-person church life, as with the rest of life, is going to take a while to find its shape again post-Covid and slowly and surely is going to be our mantra for a while. All these podcasts are taken for the time being from our Sunday services, hence the not always perfect audio quality and background noises. You can live stream them or watch the videos later on bread.church if that's more your thing. How to Return is the theme of the current series. We hope it serves you well. Amen. Would you like to have a seat? Uh, Very nice to see you. My name is Ed, as Hannah said. I lead the church with Hannah, who is my wife. Uh, And um, if you're here for the first time, welcome. You're here on your own terms. Feel free to check it out um, for as long or as little time as you like. Uh, But it's great to have you with us. We are in the middle of a series on the Psalms. Hannah kicked it off last week, um, and uh, I am continuing it. Uh, So C.S. Lewis, the writer of the Narnia Chronicles, general good person from my hometown of Oxford in the UK. Um, He used to pray before he prayed. He was so holy, he would do a pre-prayer prayer. prayer. Uh, And his pre-prayer prayer was this. May it be the real I who speak, and may it be the real you I speak to. Now, in essence, this is what this series on the Psalms is all about. Being real with ourselves before God leads to seeing his character fully and with more clarity. And seeing God with more clarity and fuller enables us to be more real with ourselves before him. Because the Psalms exhibit this in no uncertain terms. The writers hold no punches when it comes to expressing themselves before God. Everything is on the table. There's no sense of politeness or performance or religiosity or insincerity. They're just getting it all out there before their God. And within this collection of songs of praise and worship, the whole of God's character is expressed because these are written by people who really knew God. They really know all of him, his power and his majesty, his refuge and his care, his love and his forgiveness. And so this is what we're aiming for, to grow up, to be mature people who are able to fully express themselves before God, holding nothing back, and also seeing the fullness of his character. This is really what prayer and worship is all about. Now, the starting point of getting there is understanding what actually constitutes us as human beings. We are a complex mixture of thoughts and emotions and drives and bodily instincts and smells. How do we sort through... That was a little joke. We are smelly. Uh, How do we sort through all of that in order to approach God as he really is and as we really are? That's what I want to try and address this morning. But to begin with, I want to look with one word, uh, to look at one word in particular that actually features in the Psalms a whole lot. It's a word which is actually mis- un- misunderstood a lot or just kind of skipped over, but it is key. It's the word soul or nefesh in the Hebrew. 
Understanding our soul is the starting point to approaching God well. And the psalm I'm looking at this morning, Psalm 146, begins with this word soul. And we're going to kind of walk through it line by line, old school style. But before we do that, um, Joe, would you mind um, coming out? We were praying before the service, and I'll let you into a little secret. I was really unsure about this talk. I thought, this is just the wrong talk. I've been really grappling with this the whole time. Joe, come. I've been really grappling with this the whole time. This is not the right talk. Um, and then this morning, as we were praying, uh, Joe, um, what did you feel like God was saying? Straight, whatever you felt during that time. Okay, well, I, I saw like a hand being held out. It was open, and um, there was a pause, moment of pause, and then another hand came and grasped that hand. And I felt like God was saying um, to be open to the help that he is giving and offering, um, and that he will not let you down, and that he really loves you. Fantastic. Thank you. Um, that his hand is open towards us. I read um, some passages in the Bible every morning and they're kind of put into a thematic, th- a thematic theme. And um, all of the passages were about various people in the Bible um, worried, complaining, sad that God may have forsaken them, that they were lost, that they were abandoned. But over and over again, the God of the Bible reminds his people, I will not leave you. I will not leave you alone. My hand of help is there towards you, to hold you. Now, this is really what I feel like God wants to say to us as a community. And I think particularly if that is you, if you have been worried that perhaps God has gone, this is for you. So anyway, Psalm 146, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, my soul. Now, when we talk about the soul, we are not talking about some ill-defined, amorphous, woolly type of thing. We are actually talking about that part of you that is most real. In biblical thought, actually, a person doesn't have a soul. They are a soul. In Genesis 2, the Lord uh, creates human beings from the dust of the earth. They have a bodily form, but it's only when he breathes into them his spirit, that they become nefesh, a soul. The whole thing is a soul. So a soul is the very essence of you. It's your hardcore. It's that bit of you that God knew before you were born, before you even had body and mind. It's that bit of you that exists beyond any role you play in life, any job you have, any pursuit or time you spend any relationship that may seem to define you, any success or failure that you have experienced, your soul is pure you, unaffected, unadulterated by outside influence. Now, it's difficult to adequately describe the soul. In fact, the Bible is quite vague about it at times. But it's easy for us to see when the soul is thriving, and it's equally, if not more easy, to see when the soul isn't working isn't working properly. A bit like the wind, we can see its effects, but it's quite hard to fully define. We know, don't we, when people are full of soul. 
when we see them on stage, when we see them doing their thing, and we also know when people seem to have lost their soul a bit. Your soul is the part of you that longs for more God, more of God than you have right now. It's that which misses God. Jesus says, what profit a man or a woman to gain the whole world but forfeit his or her soul? And the writer Ruth Haley Barton says that losing your soul is a bit like losing your credit card. You think it's in your wallet, so you don't think much about it until one day you reach for it and you cannot find it. And the minute you realize it's gone, you start to panic and wonder how long it's been since you had it. You scramble to find it, and no matter what else is going on in life, you stop everything until you have it, because the cost of it being gone forever isn't worth thinking about. So you can be, for a lot of the time, completely unaware of the state of your soul for a time, but there tends to come a moment when you know it's been slipping away and it has been lost, and so keenly are aware of you, are, are you aware of that moment that it can feel like an ache, a pain? Things aren't quite right. Well, Jesus is laser-eyed focused on your soul. Even if the whole concept of having a soul or being aware of your soul is alien to you, or even if you're tempted to dismiss it as this is all too, a, bit, a bit too soft and a bit too touchy-feely, a little bit too emotional, you know, because there's things to be done and stuff to get achieved. The reality is, your soul is what God is most intent upon. It's good to pause for a moment, to sit in some silence, and to wait, so we can assess where our soul is at. My soul, says David in Psalm 62, wait in silence for God, God only. So... Let's do that for a little moment, shall we? I know you didn't sign up to this when you came to church this morning, but we're just going to sit in slightly awkward silence for a moment. Have you lost it a little bit or a lot? Are you unsure where it is at all? Are you keenly aware that actually it is very close and connected to God and you just want more of him? Or are you tempted to ignore this whole procedure because it feels a bit uncomfortable? How is it with your soul? You may just want to close your eyes for a moment. God is fixated on your soul because he knows it's him for whom it longs and it is only him by which it will ever be satisfied. Verse 2, I will praise the Lord all my life. I will sing praise to my God as long as I live. In uh, Psalm 42, the as the deer pants for the water one, or as Tavia was around our house the other day, and she sang it for no reason. She just sort of burst into song. And she said, as the deer panteth for thy water, eth. 
It's very odd. Anyway, in Psalm 42, the majority of that psalm is an honest lament that the psalmist's soul has been lost. Tears, he says, have been my food day and night. And people say to him, where is your God? You see, a soul downcast not only causes us pain, it makes us question everything. Where is God? Does he care? Does any of this matter? It's sleepless nights and no appetite, and it's a feeling of being alone or abandoned or actually just living a slight half-self, a half-life. That psalm, though, ends like this. My soul, why are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for yet I will praise him, my Savior and my God. The great news, the wonderful news, the beautiful news is that a lost soul can be very easily found again. It is not a difficult process. Hallelujah for that. We rushed to open in person this church again, however many weeks ago it was. If we'd found a building sooner, we would have opened sooner. And we actually ended up signing the lease and paying our first rent check about 30 minutes before our first service started. So desperate were we to just get back, be in person, see everyone. Why? Well, because whilst worshipping together and singing songs as one, and whilst community and fellowship, and whilst laying on hands and welcoming the Spirit aren't in and of themselves essential for the Christian life. No one can argue, for instance, that St. Paul's soul was fully alive when he was alone and imprisoned and being beaten and worrying about his life with no one around him. But nevertheless, being apart from one another is the type of environment where souls can more easily get lost, can't they? And in our line of business, it's not a business, in our line of business, lost souls are not good. And worship, particularly corporate worship, of the type that we've just experienced as Ben leading, I mean, he's just very good at that, isn't he? Isn't he just very good at that? Isn't it wonderful to see people who are very good at things do their thing? He's very good at that, of leading people into the presence of Jesus. When we worship, we set things straight with ourselves and with our world. It's impossible to worship properly without saying things like, God, you are God. God, you are good. You are creative. You are powerful. You became one of us to identify with us, to share in our sufferings, to set us free, to empower us. I'm yours. You forgave me. I need you. I love you. You alone can satisfy. And when we gather together to do this as one, the whole effect is multiplied. This is the language of faith, and this is the language of the soul. It is that which is connected to him, longing for him. More and more of him is what it wants, which is why in a moment we're going to spend some more time worshipping together. But first, how did our souls get into this mess? Verse 3. Do not put your trust in princes, in human beings who cannot save. When their spirit departs, they return to the ground. On the very day their plans come to nothing. Now, for the early audience of this psalm, these verses would inevitably call to mind one particular and very important moment in their history. Their ancestors demanded of God centuries earlier that he should give them a king. They wanted a prince. 
having been brought up out of Egypt, having known that they were God's people, having been given the promised land, having been given the covenant and the Lord that set them apart as his and his forever, nevertheless, they got bored. Nevertheless, they got tired of being unlike everyone else. They wanted to be like everyone else, and they said, they demanded, appoint for us then a king to govern us like other nations. Samuel the prophet warns them this is not going to go well, yet they persist and eventually God relents. And after a couple of goodish kings who were more good than bad, after that they successively get worse and worse and worse and worse. And everything that Samuel foresaw comes to pass. It's a disaster. The kingdom splits, it's overtaken by the Assyrians, and finally it's sacked by the Babylonians. There is a theory of desire, mimetic theory of which the Israelites wanting to be like every other nation is a perfect example. We like to believe, so the theory goes, that we are autonomous, independent people capable of making free choices. That there's this straight line between us and what we want. The truth, though, is that all desire is not actually the product of our own free will at all. We, decide, we desire things not because we've decided that we want them, but because we see other people desiring them and we desire their desire. Pretty much everyone at our school gate has bought a dog in the last few years. And everyone has bought the same dog. Do you want to guess what it is? You already know. It's a Labradoodle. And it is in honey brown color. Even we bought that dog, although we didn't, because we're idiots, we bought Ziggy, who we've come to love. He was supposed to be that dog. He's a lesser version, but we still love him. It's very hard for me to believe that everyone at our thoroughly LA, middle-class, liberal elementary school decided all of their own free will to get pretty much exactly the same dog at pretty much exactly the same moment in their lives. I never knew I wanted a pair of Crocs. In fact, I am almost certain that I do not want a pair of Crocs, that I despise Crocs. In fact, I think they are the shoes of the devil. It would be good if we gathered all the Crocs from every corner of the earth, put them in a big shipping container, took them to the deepest part of the ocean, dumped them there, never to be seen again. And yet, I've started seeing people I think are really cool wearing Crocs. And I'm just beginning to wonder, should I? Yeah, but should I? They're very practical. Now, of course, the more contrarian of us who vehemently reject the consensus, unfortunately, are also living a similar lie. The truth is, the desire not to conform is also a received desire desired by many. Look, for instance, at punks or hippies, aggressively countercultural, but strangely all wearing very similar clothes, all listening to very similar music, all speaking about very similar things. There are basic instincts that are in every single human being. We know we need shelter. 
We need food. We need warmth. Our bodies tell us when we are lacking these things. Desires, though, on the other hand, are things we pursue for which there is no purely instinctual basis. There is no built-in mechanism for what type of restaurant I should go to or what type of holiday I should take. And so, often entirely subconsciously, we seek out models, people who show us what to desire. These models could be the closest of our closest friends or as far away as someone we will never have any hope of interacting with directly, but maybe only through a screen on Instagram or in print. Desire is always for something that we lack, but actually we do not need. And therefore, it is never, ever satisfied. We like to think that desire is object-orientated, that once we've got it, that will be it, we'll have enough, but desire never finds fulfillment in a particular thing. There's a constant, never-ending flow of new desires for new things to keep us occupied. And it's not just limited to things. In fact, most desire is not for things at all. I used to work in advertising, uh, and I wrote ads for various um, big sort of London agencies. The reason I ultimately left that world behind other than the fact that after a while no one really wanted to give me a job, uh, was because I realized uh, that I had lost interest or belief in the actual work. The realization came as I was sort of struggling with this brief for bottled water. It was actually the brief that I was working on when Hannah first realized that she loved me. Isn't that romantic? Yes. Um, as with so many products, what we weren't advertising was the water. It was water. What we were advertising was the idea of the water. I think we ended up with this incredibly meta, postmodern line. The brand was called Vitel. I don't know if you have it here, but it's like the second biggest in the um, market. And the idea was we were exposing what everyone knew already, that bottled water is just bottled water. Um, but we were letting people in. So I think the, the line was Vitel, let's keep it our little secret, very meta that all bottled water was just bottled water, but Vitel drinkers were in on the joke, which made them so much better than everyone else. What we were doing, and the vast majority of advertising does, was not real. We weren't creating a desire for a thing. We were creating a desire for what other people think people should desire. During COVID, a lot of people left this city to live in Austin. <laughs> so many people, in fact, that if you're anything like me, you may have started to wonder, should I move to Austin? I've never been to Austin. I really like it here. We have a house here. My children go to school here. They love it. We have this church that we love here. And yet, should I go to Austin? It's insatiable. Nothing against Austin, although Texas. <laughs> Deep down, our desires are actually just plain old envy and jealousy. Not for things, but for identity. No one desires an Oscar because they like gold little statues. They desire Oscars 
because of what other people have said that being an Oscar winner says about who you are. Not even what you've done, but who you are. The more people want one, the stronger the desire to have one becomes. And this is actually where things can get a little bit darker, and this, I think, is what is in the mind of the psalmist as he writes these verses. When desires take hold on a grand scale, people stop becoming who they really are. They lose individuality, simply becoming clones of one another, all wanting pretty much the same things. And when everyone starts to desire the same thing, conflict arises. How many wars down the centuries have been fought over desire? Every single one of them. We people want something that you have, so we're going to come and get it. How many bullies in the playground gather together all desiring the same thing, whether it's popularity or recognition or love or success or whatever they feel that, like they're lacking, and then they take out their unmet desires by beating up the innocent weak kid because there's nowhere else to direct the rage. This is how mobs work. No mob will readily admit that they're taking out their unmet, heartfelt desires on some, for all extents and purposes, innocent bystander. But that is what they're doing. And doesn't the same dynamic work over and over again online, on Twitter? Desires turning to rage, which either eats the group alive or is turned outward towards some third party. And particularly in Western hugely affluent cultures like ours, where the majority of people haven't really needed anything, warmth or clothing or food, for centuries, desire runs rampant. Now, 50 years ago, there might be 100 people that you were connected to, 100 people giving you ideas of what to desire. But now, it's thousands upon thousands upon thousands. It's everywhere. More and more and more and more desire. This is what I think is in the mind of the psalmist. He knows where these things inevitably end up. More and more desire equals more and more rage, more and more dysfunction of God's people. The whole structure and fabric of society begins to fall apart. So let's be honest with ourselves for a second. Have we lost our soul? maybe just for a little bit. Have we said the equivalent of, give me a king, God, so I can be like everyone else? And if you don't mind me asking, has that made you more or less happy? Verse 5. Blessed which really means satisfied, full. It's actually pretty close to happy, joyful, not needing anything else. Blessed are those whose help is in the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord their God. He is the maker of heaven and earth, the sea and everything in them. He remains faithful forever. His is the hand stretching out 
saying, place yours in mine. I'll never, ever, ever leave you. Hannah and I um, regularly see uh, a spiritual advisor. He's an older guy. His kids have left home. He's very wise. He's very nice. Most of the time, it's me divulging my problems to him and him patiently listening and Hannah patiently listening. If I analyze it cold-heartedly, you could categorize my problems like this. I desire what other people have got. Whether it's more discipline, less of a dad bod, a super successful church, whatever the hell that means. More time. I'd quite like to be younger. And every week, our beloved spiritual advisor, long-suffering, must be very bored by now, says pretty much the same thing, something along the lines of, yes, but aren't you really just asking for more of God? Isn't that what you really need? And he's also slightly annoyingly one of those people that completely embodies it. Full of joy. One of those people so free from outside influence that you know he's just devoted to God and he knows him well. That when he speaks, it's the real him who speaks and it's the real God whom he speaks to. The contrast is clear. In verse 3, princes are finite. Their spirit departs. They return to the ground. Their plans come to nothing. The Lord God, though, is infinite, maker of heaven and earth, there before time began, faithful forever, infinite in power. The psalmist is not saying, desire God. The psalmist is saying, you need God. In the same way you need water, in the same way you need bread. There is no substitute. He is essential. Verse 7. He upholds the cause of the oppressed. He gives food for the hungry. The Lord sets prisoners free. The Lord gives sight to the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the foreigner and sustains the fatherless and the widow. And he frustrates the ways of the wicked. A couple of weeks ago, uh, Raoul and I spoke about the theme of justice running through the Bible. We've just commissioned our STC team. We are so grateful for you, and we are going to follow you, aren't we, all of us? Yes. All lives matter. But throughout the Bible, we see that some just need more, more justice, more mercy, because of what has happened God's heart is particularly towards those who are most in need, and so must ours. And we as a church, as bread, will continue to drive forward all that we believe biblical justice represents. Black lives matter. Racism is anathema to the kingdom of God. And he is there to set all oppressed people free. It's important for us to keep saying that over and over again. But right now, I want to ask you to do something which is entirely scripturally legitimate. I want you 
to know that this is also a list about you. God comes to bring justice for you. To put things right in your world. Such is the extraordinary, bountiful grace of God that when he talks about those in need, you are in his mind. Even if, like me, you are a cis, white, privileged male. So let me ask you, are you oppressed? To some degree, we all are because of where we live. Oppressed by the sheer force of a broken world pushing down on us. We are oppressed by our own sin. The silly things that we do, we know we shouldn't, and we do them anyway. We're oppressed by other people's sin that has robbed us, that has taken parts of us, that we are due back. Are you hungry? Hungry for the bread of life, thirsty for the water of the spirit. We go after things, we fill ourselves up with junk food, and only after we've eaten our fill do we realize it hasn't satisfied us at all. And that just one sip of pure, unadulterated water of life will quench your thirst. It will well up like streams of living water and you will come alive again. Have you, to one degree or another, been imprisoned? By repeating destructive patterns of behavior, by repetitive thoughts of hopelessness, of turmoil, are you saying, like the people in the passages that I read this morning, where is God? Has he forsaken me? Do you feel blinded by untruth and the half-truths that this world speaks? Have you lost sight of what is up and what is down? Have you questioned whether God is there at all? Has your body started to creak under the pressure? Bowed, bent over under the weight of anxiety, of expectation of what other people think of you, of you should be doing better and why haven't you got further? And why, oh why, oh why is this life so hard? This psalm is an exaltation for all of us. Let us return to the Lord, the maker of heaven. But it's not just that. It's also a prophecy. It's a cry of expectation and of hope that one day God will visit his people, that one day the fullness of his goodness will be seen, that he won't remain far off. He won't just speak now and again. He won't just visit his people now and again, but he will gather up the whole of his creation to himself. That he will abide with his people, never ever to depart. And on that day, the oppressed, the hungry, the blind, the imprisoned, the bowed down, will all be lifted up, will all be vindicated, that the new age would come. That day, for which the psalmist longs, is today. And it's every day since Jesus announced that he's the king and he's here to save the world, to change it all, to change it all for you. I'll end with this, Luke 7, and then we're going to worship. When the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to ask you. 
Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? At that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits, and gave sight to many who were blind. So Jesus replied to the messengers, Go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight. The lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. And the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Jesus is king. His kingdom is at hand. It is in your grasp. Just reach out and take it. This is what he offers in his hands to us. Because Christianity is not a matter of moral performance. It's not about doctrinal accuracy. It's not about spiritual ritual or listening to sermons or singing songs. Christianity is about Jesus being Lord. Being the king of you. Allowing him to be who he is so that your soul can come back to life again and be connected to him. See him in all his glory and his majesty. Take courage. Put your trust in him once more. Let your soul come back to life in his presence. Amen. I forgot, Sally, to put the last verse on my text. Would you mind putting it on the thing of the psalm? Just for completeness sake. There it is. So what I suggest we do is we do what we're supposed to do. Praise the Lord. Give him the glory he deserves. Set him in his rightful place once more, as we have been doing. And then allow him to bring us to life. To deal with all the things that we need to be dealt with. Anything that's blocking us from coming into his presence. We can just leave it in the seat and know that it's forgiven. God has forgiven everything for all of time, once and for all on the cross. So we don't need to go diving into ourselves to find things that we must finally confess. If we know it's there, give it to him, let him deal with it. And then let him pour his spirit into you and change you. Amen? Amen. Amen.